Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. Uh, though you might disbelieve it from what the outline says, I think Dan Miller was grasping for some power in the church. <laughs> I'm one of the elders here for Grace Fellowship Church. One day when I was in Uganda in East Africa to adopt my twin sons, I saw a man across the room one day who was waving to me. And I thought that was nice, and so I waved back to him and went on with my business that I was doing, sitting at a table or something. But uh, as I looked up, this, this guy kept waving, and with greater fervor, and eventually with both hands. And I'm like, hello. And what I realized afterward, he had to come across the room and talk to me, and he was very agitated for having to do so. Because I, I saw this guy waving, and I saw his increased agitation and his interest in something, but I failed to perceive what was really going on. Because in Uganda, the overhand flapping fingers does not mean hello. It means, come here, please. We do it underhanded. If I give you an underhand flapping fingers, you might come over to me. Over there, they do it overhand. I wasn't getting the message. And he's like, come here, please. Two hands. And I didn't get it. I wasn't getting the message. And I was in danger of offending my friend because I saw what was happening, but I did not understand. In Mark chapter 8, we see the same sort of misperception on the part of both Jesus' friends and his foes. We will see folks who see Jesus but do not understand him. We've been studying through the book of Mark for a number of months. We took a few weeks off for a short series on marriage. Today we're coming back to Mark, and we're in chapter 8. And we're studying the book of Mark, which is one of four biographies in the Bible of about Jesus. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 547. These biographies, well, this one especially, Mark, the book of Mark, is all about how Jesus is God's authorized king who suffered and died so that those who turn away from sin and trust Jesus can join in the disruptive expansion of his kingdom in the world. In the early chapters of Mark, Mark showed Jesus zipping about and proving himself constantly proving that he is the God who controls weather, that he is the king who speaks and even demons must obey, that he is the savior who, like God alone, is able to forgive sins. And since it's been a few weeks since we've been in Mark, I just want to remind you, we last left him in chapter 7 in a non-Jewish region called the Decapolis, where even those who were without God's word were begging him for breadcrumbs. There was a non-Jewish woman asking Jesus to help uh, her, her, uh, her demon-possessed daughter to get better. And there were other friends who brought their deaf and mute friend to Jesus so that Jesus could make him hear and speak. And now we're in chapter 8. And in chapter 8, we will see that many who see Jesus don't understand him. 
And that's my main point this morning. Many who see Jesus don't understand him. And Mark will ask us this question. You have seen Jesus. Do you understand him? And so we'll see in four sections here on your outline. First, we will see the king's compassion. Then we will see the king's signs. We will see those who don't see. And in the end, the question will be, do you see anything? Let me pray, and then we'll dive into the text. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would please grant uh, our hearts eyes to see the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. We pray that you would do this by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 8. I will start by reading verses 1 through 10. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, He, Jesus, called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, as I read this passage, if you feel some deja vu, that's okay. Because, yes, Jesus already did this in Mark. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus already fed a large crowd of 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and a few pieces of fish. Here in chapter 8, we're in a different place It's a different event with a different set of people, but Mark invites us to compare these two events from chapter 6 and chapter 8. There are some very clear similarities. For example, verse 2 says that Jesus has compassion on the crowd. In chapter 6, his feeding there was also driven by his compassion for the people who were like sheep without a shepherd. In verses 5 and 7 here, we see that Jesus starts with a few loaves and a few small fish, just like the other feeding. And in verse 8, we see that the disciples gather baskets overflowing with leftovers, just like in the feeding of 5,000 in chapter 6. There are some differences, however, between these two feedings that we should note. One is that uh, the exact numbers of the loaves used and the exact number of the leftovers is different between the two. The first feeding had 5,000 people. This one has 4,000 people. So they're two distinct events. Well, I think the main difference Mark wants to draw our attention to, however, is how the disciples view the incident. In chapter 6, verse 37, when faced with this huge crowd and the need to feed them, 
Jesus said to the disciples, you, to his disciples, you give them something to eat. And they said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? In other words, in the first feeding in chapter 6, the disciples saw that the chief problem was that there's not enough money or we, or it's just going to cost too much money. It was a money problem to feed those people. Now look at what the problem is in chapter 8, verse 4. Jesus says, if I, if I send them away, they'll faint. And so his disciples answer him in 8, 4. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? You see the problem there? The problem now is nobody can do this. How could this be done? This is striking. There's some key points we should take away from this feeding. First, let us make no mistake that Jesus has compassion for people. Jesus has compassion for people. Verse 2, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And there's no way around this. Compassion is what drives both feeding events in chapter 6 and chapter 8. Please see this king's compassion for these people who have gathered around him. How does this apply to us? We must remember why Jesus deals with us. Jesus deals with us, we who are in these crowds, not out of obligation. He doesn't do it out of boredom. He does it out of compassion. You and I need a king who has compassion. Unless God's king has compassion on us, we are hopelessly lost. It's like the fact that, that I've had the, the opportunity a few times in my life to pick someone up from an airport who didn't know me. Have you ever had that experience? And you know, I, I'm always tempted to just sit in a chair in the corner and just watch the person be lost and see what happens, hoping if their ride is going to come for them, but they don't know who it will be or what that person looks like, but I know what they look like. Thank God that God is not like me. God does not do that to us. We need his compassion. That's the first key point out of this, is that Jesus has compassion for his people. The second key thing we need to be aware of from this section is that the disciples are moving backwards. The disciples are moving backwards. In chapter 4, verse 11, Jesus praised them greatly when they were asking him about his parables, and he said, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. This is really great. And then in chapter 6, verse 37, which I read in the first feeding, they thought it was possible to feed the people. They just weren't sure how expensive it would get. And now in chapter 8, they're not even sure it's possible to feed these people. So they have seen Jesus' compassion, but they are mistaking completely his identity. They are mistaking his power. And the application for us from that is watch out. Watch out. If you spend lots of time with Jesus or you spend lots of time in church, that doesn't mean you understand him yet. You might see him do something amazing in your life. You might hear about him regularly and then forget about it or think that he won't be able to do it again. 
When I was in Uganda, I saw God do a miracle in the heart of the Ugandan judge who, in our second week there, he denied us guardianship of these children outright. And three months later, he was a different judge who was saying that if he didn't grant us guardianship of these children, they might die. What happened? There's a miracle that took place here. And I saw God do that once. And now, you know what I do? I face a thorny parenting issue with one of these boys, and I think, this will never change. God can't do a miracle now. He can't change their heart. He can't change my heart. And I struggle with unbelief. Watch out, friends. Watch out, lest you too see his compassion but mistake his identity. Let's move on. See the king's signs. Verses 11 through 13. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Look at this. In in verse 12, Jesus is incredibly blunt and impolite to these poor Pharisees. Does that sound very Christ-like? We need to remember that in Mark, earlier in this book, these Pharisees have already accused Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus said that unbelief like theirs, the failure to believe that Jesus came from God, that is the only unforgivable sin. These same Jewish leaders now, verse 11 says, they argue with him. Seeking, no, demanding a sign. In other words, they want Jesus to authenticate his actions. They can see him casting out demons. They can see him healing people. They can see him feeding large crowds. Of course, you can't miss those things. But later in this book, they will ask, Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? And that's the issue here, is they want him to do a sign from heaven so that we know that you're doing these miracles by the power of God and not by the power of Satan. But the problem is they've already made up their minds. They don't believe him. They're not going to believe him. They don't want to believe him. They're not looking for evidence to believe him. They are looking for reasons to accuse him. They refuse to consider whether he might be the God who forgives sin. And that's why verse 11 says that they asked him this to test him. They don't really want to know. They just want to put him in a lose-lose situation because if he doesn't do a sign, then he can't be who he says he is. And if he does do a sign, then they'll say he does it by the power of Satan. So the request for a sign is not a request for assurance to their troubled hearts. It is an aggressive power play and an attempt to control Jesus. Therefore, Jesus shuts them down. He refuses to give in, and he runs away to the other side of the sea. How does this apply to us? This is a short paragraph, but we need to take this very seriously. If if you're here today, and you, you aren't sure if you believe Jesus, or if you struggle to believe Jesus, that that he is who he says he is, that he is the son of God and he can forgive sins. 
That's okay if you're struggling. Please keep investigating. Possibly consider joining one of our growth groups. We have one that meets on Sunday nights and one on Monday nights and one on Wednesday nights. You can join a small group of people to investigate the claims of Jesus. You can take some time. You can consider this. You can read the Bible. You can discuss it. Please keep investigating. But be aware of this, that if you refuse outright to believe unless you get a voice from heaven or some miraculous sign, you need to know this. You have already received every sign that you need. The voice from heaven has already spoken. He spoke in chapter 1 of Mark, and he said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He's going to say it again in chapter 9. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. You've heard the voice. Scripture contains eyewitness testimony to the works of Jesus. Please talk to people here. We'll tell you of God's miraculous work in rescuing us from our sins. And consider this. You might not need another sign. If you refuse what you already have been given, what good will another sign do for you? Please don't reject Jesus out of hand, but consider these words that have been recorded as a sign for us. See the king's signs. And as we see the king's signs, we also, third, can see those who don't see. Verses 14 to 21. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. He's in the boat again, going to the other side with his disciples. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware! of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This passage is... Glorious, because Jesus takes everything from the last three chapters of this book and he ties it up with a bow. Verse 15, he tells them to watch out, to beware of the leaven of Pharisees and Herod. And what exactly Jesus meant by that is a slight mystery as far as Mark is concerned. He, he's, I think he's probably encouraging them to repent and believe to turn away from their sin and trust in him because that's been his message through this whole book and that's what the Pharisees and Levin refused to do. But Mark, the author, he is less concerned about what Jesus meant by that statement than he is about how the disciples responded to it. Because in verse 16, they go on and have a discussion about their lack of bread on board the boat. And in verse 17, Jesus frames that discussion as a failure to perceive or understand what he's talking about. And he says at the end of 17, are your hearts hardened? 
Uh Uh-oh. This does not look good. In verse 18, he asks a series of questions that are functionally a series of accusations. You have eyes that don't see. You have ears that don't hear. And in verses 19 and 20, he draws their attention back to what they could see. When I fed the first crowd, how many leftovers were there? When I fed the second crowd, how many leftovers were there? And the key question is in verse 21. Do you not yet understand? Now we have to take a minute to ask a crucial question at this point. What should they have understood about what they saw in these feedings? Because sometimes we can read a passage like this and skim right over it and go on our merry way and we just keep going. Because Jesus doesn't actually answer the question right here, explicitly. But we need to ask, what should they have understood that Jesus is dumbfounded that they don't get it? And there is some mystery here. There, it's not, there, there's some code to be broken. Mark's point, I think, actually, is so obvious that we're often fooled by its simplicity. Mark's point is simply this. What should they have understood? They should have understood that this is not about bread. That's what they should have understood. That this is not about bread. What is not about bread? All of it. This conversation is not about bread. The two massive feeding miracles are not about bread. The conversation in chapter 7 with the Gentile woman about crumbs from the table is not about bread. The stilling of the sea, the request for a sign from heaven, all of these things are not about bread. Remember, the the feeding of the 4,000 hinged on the question, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? The question was, who on earth could possibly do such a thing? And Jesus, here, in this conversation on the boat, he's trying to remind them, I can do it. I did it. I did it twice, and I can still do it. I am the sign for this generation. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I am the God who can forgive sins. I am the Son of God who will rule until all my enemies are defeated. I am the bridegroom come to win my bride and start a feast. I am the commander of demons, the shaper of nature, the Lord of the Sabbath. I can touch the unclean. I can speak life into paralyzed legs. I hold the power of resurrection. This is not about bread. This is about me. Friends, how does this apply to us? You see Jesus, but do you understand him? You and I come to church and we greet our friends with pleasant greetings. And we sing God's story and we listen to God's words and we hear testimony to how God is working. And we put money in that box in the back of the room to support this ongoing mission. Every moment here and during the week, we experience his all-powerful 
righteous presence as he upholds all creation, giving all things life and breath, determining our times and our boundaries and the very places we will live. You see all of those things, but do you understand them? How clear is it to you that none of this is about bread? In other words, it's not about your provision. It's about his identity. These things that we do in church, these things that happen to us in life, they're not about your safety or your family or your bills or your health. This isn't about my children, my future, my success, or my self-respect. You and I see God's character. We see Jesus's nature week by week, day by day. And I wag my finger at these stupid disciples who fail to perceive who Jesus is. And yet I am exactly like them day in and day out. For example, we just had the beginning of a new year, which in the Kroll family means it's budget time. That means that Aaron and I have to ask each other all the hard questions. Are we giving enough? No. Are we saving enough? No. Are we covering our expenses? Sometimes. I see how much money we spent on clothes for our five children, and I start to freak out. Money stuff is the source of some of the most difficult conflict and stress in my marriage with Aaron. And I go about asking my daily, asking for my daily bread, which Jesus encouraged us to do, but I still forget that in the end, this isn't about bread. Jesus' mission is not to help me meet my budget. Jesus' mission is to bring God's kingdom. When you're in small groups after the sermon this morning, you'll have an opportunity to discuss this. What are some other areas where you see what Jesus does, but you forget who Jesus is? That is a key question for us here. Where do you see what Jesus does, but forget who Jesus is, and you act as though it's all about bread. But we need to see those who don't see and learn this lesson that it is not about bread. It's about Jesus and his person and his mission, his character as the Christ, the Son of God. And so as I close, I hope something is clear, that you and I are not naturally like Jesus, having compassion on the crowds and always going about the work of God's kingdom. We are not always focused on the right priorities and strategically growing God's kingdom. I think most of the time we are more like the disciples who see but don't understand. And that makes us much more like the hungry crowds, hoping that Jesus will have compassion on us Though we have eyes, sometimes we don't see. But perhaps Jesus can do something for blind eyes. Let's read verses 22 to 30. Point number four, do you see anything? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, 
His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, "But, but you, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Friends, when you read, pay attention to the order of events. They are not accidental as the author crafts his story. In the boat, in verse 21, the blind disciples fail to see that Jesus' miracles are not primarily about meeting physical needs, but they are about showing off his identity. They are blind to the truth. Then, Jesus heals a blind man who, in verse 25, saw everything clearly. And then suddenly, one of the disciples nails it about Jesus' identity. You are the Christ. This is the turning point of the book of Mark. Right here, where Peter makes this confession, that you are the Christ. Up until now, Mark... Chapters 1 through 8 have focused on Jesus' identity. They've focused on the king's credentials, Jesus' credentials to serve as God's chosen king. But from here to the end of the book, Mark now will turn to focus on Jesus' mission. He will focus on the pain that Jesus must suffer to usher in the kingdom. And despite all of his training of the disciples, to this point, despite all of his miracles, they still cannot see who Jesus is unless Jesus miraculously opens their blind eyes. And when he heals this blind man at Bethsaida, just like all the rest of his miracles, it is a living parable of what he intends to do. And he opens the disciples' eyes even while he opens the blind man's eyes. And Peter then says, you are the Christ. And the Christ is a word that we haven't heard in Mark since chapter 1, verse 1, when Mark introduced his book, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. The Christ translates the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the one appointed by God to do this task of being God's king. And now, by a work of God's grace, the disciples understand that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And so in verse 30, Jesus strictly charges them to tell nobody about this. The disciples and the rest of the Jews are not yet ready for a true Messiah because they have faulty ideas about what it means to be God's Christ, God's Messiah. They have faulty ideas about leadership that must be corrected first. And so, the disciples, at this point, they have graduated with their bachelor's degrees. They know that Jesus is the Christ. And in the very next passage, where we will go next week, 
they will begin graduate school to understand what this really means, that he is the Christ. Closing application for us is, please see Jesus. Do you see anything as you hear about him, as you see what he does in your life, as you see what he does in our church, as you see what he does in your family, in the world around us? Do you really see him? Do you see God's Messiah? Do you see the Savior, the Rescuer, the only mediator between God and man, the one who has compassion on you and who can open your blind eyes? So in summary, please see the King's compassion. See what Jesus does with the crowds, and let's follow his example, but let's mostly be thankful that he has compassion on us. See the King's signs which means see who Jesus is and honor him. Don't try to control him and just get what you want out of him. Third, see those who don't see. Watch out for those who claim to see but really don't understand. And fourth, do you see anything? Do you see how much Jesus loves you such that you can see him heal your blindness and you can receive him as God's Messiah, as the inaugurated king? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, unless you had come to open blind eyes, Lord, we would never see you. We would not understand. We cannot do it on our own. We cannot get to you on our own. Please forgive us for all the times, all the days, all the ways that we try to get to you on our own, to do things in our own strength, by our own works. Lord, we rest on your grace. Please have compassion and mercy on us and heal us and make us to see that we might follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which uh, is a, a meal that we celebrate together as God's people, as the people of the risen Christ, as we celebrate this meal to, to proclaim Christ's death, to proclaim that, that, that we see Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the only king who rules all things, and he is the only one who can make us right with God. And there are some things we might not understand, and there are things we're investigating, and there are things we struggle with, and we fight our own sin. But that's okay, because Jesus died, and he came to open blind eyes so that we might see everything clearly. Jesus himself talked about his role, even his role as God's Messiah, even as he instituted the Lord's Supper in Mark chapter 14, after celebrating the bread and the cup, he, he says in Mark 14, 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when Jesus says that, he's picking up on all kinds of imagery from the Old Testament that talks about the coming of God's Messiah, God's inaugurated king who will bring in the age of abundant wine and overflowing wine and joy and gladness and healing to the nations. And Jesus is saying, I haven't done it yet, 
But after I die and I'm risen from the dead, it'll be here. And the kingdom of God has come. And so we celebrate that as we proclaim Jesus' death. If you're here today and you do not believe in Jesus, if you are not sure who he is, or you are resisting him or you are waiting for a sign or you're just uncertain, we are so glad you're here and we're glad to have you. Please feel free not to participate with us in this. This meal is for Christians. It's for those who trust that Jesus is their only king. And please feel free to stay in your seat. But for those of you who do participate, uh, you are welcome if you trust in Jesus as God's king.